1: Bran was going to be a knight himself someday, one of the king's guard. Old Nan had said they were the finest swords in all the realm. There were only seven of them, and they wore white armor, had no wives or children, but lived only to serve the king. Bran knew all the stories. Their names were like music to him. Sir of the Murshield, Sir Ryan Redwine, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, the twins, Sir Eric and Sir Arik who had died on one of his swords hundreds of years ago when Brother fought Sister in the war that soon was called The Dance of Dragons, the White Bull, Gerald Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, and of course, Sir Barristan the Bold.
2: That quote's very telling, describes the duties of the King's Guard while simultaneously showing the level of reverence they inspire. It tells us, you know, in a nutshell, there are an elite group of bodyguards who, who, uh, for defending those with royal blood. Uh, you can see from the fact that this is a brand quote that uh, a lot of young boys aspire to join the king's Guard, something they uh, grow up uh, dreaming of, especially by second sons, those who know they're not going to inherit uh, people that you know the, those who don't have as much of a future laid out for them by being their firstborn of their father. Yeah,
0: yeah. I bet a bunch of them change their minds when they hit puberty,
2: though.
0: (laughs) It'll just be a regular night. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Uh, No wives? I don't think so.
1: (laughs) What? No women? What? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, once again, we want to welcome you all to another History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to a Song of Ice and Fire book series by George R. R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm just one of your hosts, I'm Steve, a.k.a. the
2: Friggin' Italian, here in Los Angeles. Out here in Atlanta, uh... The nerdiest city. The nerdiest city in the country, we just found that out, Atlanta won some sort of top ten list, so take that, folks. Uh, co-hosts me, uh, Aziz here, and Ashea on my left, as usual, and in this episode we're gonna delve deep into the history of the Kingsguard, it is a spoiler-free episode, um... We're going to be going through several important historical eras and looking at how the Kingsguard changed, evolved, and, and of course, lots of individual stories of, of bravery and heroism and all that fun stuff. Oh, yeah. We're going to go, so basically it'll be the, the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, all about the Kingsguard. We're going to, we're going to turn over every stone we can.
1: So basically, the, 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 uh, the Kingsguard was founded by Aegon the Conqueror, actually. It was a concept of a royal bodyguard. Not nothing really original, but he had just recently adopted the faith of the seven as part of the legitimization of his authority. So he decided to set his king guard, king's guard, I should say, at a total of seven. So he has seven king's guard. This has continuously existed since the conquest, which has been about three hundred years now.
0: Yeah, and that means that one of those men in Bran's quote, Serwin of the Mirror Shield, actually wasn't in the Kingsguard. He was a a mythical hero that existed far before there were even knights, so he wasn't in the Kingsguard. But the Kingsguard is historically, it's comprised of seven knights, but there's one notable exception in Sandor Clegane, the Hound.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, more than a hound is uh, our, uh, our, our podcast will be covering Houses of Mormont, Tarly, Castle, and as well as, you know, the Hound's House, the Cleganes. One of those seven knights is also the Lord commander of the King's Guard. And it also should be noted that they actually serve until death. This, this is a lifelong commitment. Regardless of sickness or health or even loss of a limb, they will serve until they die. Another member also takes on, if somebody becomes invalid um, or helpless or unable to do their duties, another member will take on their duties as long as they live, until somebody comes to be appointed to replace them. And they can't be replaced until they're dead,
2: So, And we know that the members of the King's Guard don't hold land or have children or marry or, or have any worldly allegiance except to the monarch. But they're also a sworn brotherhood. So given what Steve just said about how they help the older members, the ones who have been crippled or otherwise uh, are less capable of doing their duty, they help each other out. So it is a bit of a brotherhood. They kind of see each other as uh, others, each other as, as, blood in a sense. But ultimately their duty is to the crown. The example we gave before in the quote from Bran about Sir Eric and Sir Ark killing each other is a perfect example of that. They were actual brothers, twins, in fact, not just brothers of the King's Guard. But when it all came down to it, you know, they ended up on opposite sides. They had to to fight each other. So that's the way it goes.
0: Yeah, and so unlike everyone else, the King's Guard doesn't have to kneel for the king and and – because they have to remain vigilant at all times. They can't protect the king if they're if they're down on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. They're also the only ones permitted to wear blades or carry weapons in the king's presence. And part- yeah, it comes into play later on during Robert's Rebellion, for instance. But not to get carried away with ourselves. <laughs> uh, apart from the blades that they wear constantly, there's uh, some. Of their clothing is pretty interesting. They wear intricate suits of white enamel scales, and their fastenings for their breastplate are made of silver. So you know it's a ni- it's a nice outfit, though it's all white, very all beautiful. white cloaks, plain white shields. They wear little or no or ornamentations or sigils on their white armor. So just white.
2: Just picture that on a battlefield. Really, think about a group of uh, ring of steel of and white, uh, very bright, shining, encircling. What would typically be uh, a black and red group of, of armored men or men, considering the royal family, is throughout most of this history has been Targaryen and that's their colors. So, that I mean, that's got to really stand out on a battlefield. It probably inspires other men to, to fight better with more morale, perhaps, and perhaps the opposite for the enemy. It might um, scare them a bit, you know, seeing such a stark contrast and seeing these really. Uh, Really, just outstanding uh, visage. So, uh, but at court, it's a similar thing. But try to picturing that—you've got this white shadow always standing there, very silent most of the time, but, but ever present, uh, omnipresent almost. Uh, and a lot of times, given their armor, they all probably all look the same in some cases. If they're not, yeah, especially if they have their helms on. I'm sure there's some differences from time to time, but it, but it's. There's a lot of times I'm sure the images of, of near identical shadows, seven are very similar, uh, and this is, of course, the the notion of the Kingsguard being omnipresent is a really important distinction between other knights or other fighters because when you think of a warrior, you think of somebody who goes out on the battlefield and fights, or somebody who fights in duels. Well, the Kingsguard is they're dealing with that on top of. A whole set of other responsibilities, which mostly revolve around dealing with intrigue and things like assassination attempts, things that your typical warrior type isn't necessarily well equipped to do. So it's really important to to think of the King's Guard as well-rounded. They're not just fighters, and they don't really get breaks either. They're kind of on all the time. They, they, they the king threats to the king or the royal family could happen at any time. So uh, you know, even when they're asleep, they're, they need to be thinking about, well, who's, who's on duty right now and who's got charge in the morning. It's, it's got to be on their minds constantly.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because uh, um, white seems to be the common theme amongst the Kingsguard. Um, they're, all, they're known pretty much as the white swords or the white cloaks. Um, and as you recall from previous podcasts, we've talked about, you know, white cloaks, red cloaks, gold cloaks. Uh, the white cloaks are obviously the Kingsguard. And this is definitely in contrast to the Black Brothers on the wall. Um, There's many uh, monastic qualities similar to the Night's Watch uh, in the fact that they have, you know, they they commit themselves to celibacy, Um, they forswear any former allegiances in their families, Uh, they have no lands or wealth. Uh, Another thing to me of interest is the fact that they live in what's known as the White Sword Tower, And it's a slender structure. It's about four stories tall overlooking the bay, a Blackwater Bay, of course. Um, The first floor is one room, and it's called the Round Room. And it's really white. Uh, It's (laughs) whitewashed. White wooden tapestries, large white weirwood table in the shape of a shield, and seven chairs. I imagine the chairs are probably all white, too.
2: Oh, but they're not. How about that? The <laughs> one thing that's not white in that room. This is these are the kind of details you guys really want to know. The color of the chairs in the white room—they're not oh, white. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're all there, They carry keep all their armor and arms in this in a cellar, in an undercroft cellar there. And the second and third floors are small spare quarters of the six regular members. The top floor, fourth floor, is also square, uh, very spacious, but typically going to be very spartan because it's the Lord Commander's tower, and of course the Lord Commander's got to set an example of, of being kind of plain and not, you know, they have the, the regal trappings, but they don't have personal things so much. Yeah. Um, so the white, uh, as, a, as a significance to us um, in the real world, has some connotation that it carries over into uh, the Seven Kingdoms. It's a pure color. It's associated with nobility and, and celibacy and a lot of these other things that we brought up, uh, but consider um, religious aspects like the faith, um, as well as considering that protecting the king is something that's ordained by the gods, because uh, in a lot of monarchical traditions, the king is somebody that's chosen by the gods. Uh, that's kind of how the people are taught to accept it. And that's no different here, where Egon himself was crowned by the high Septon. So it was kind of like saying to the common people that the gods accepted this. Uh, In a real world, too, the Pope wears white. I mean, it's just the parallels are are all over the place.
0: But by far the most precious item in White Sword Tower is the White Book. More white. It's also (laughs) known as the Book of the Brothers, but they go with the White Book because more white. Easier to say, too. (laughs) Book of the Brothers, though. Yeah, that's a little bit harder. But that's where the history of every member is recorded. The Lord Commander is the one who keeps these entries updated. Otherwise, it's just chaos, everyone writing in what they think about themselves
2: <laughs> and saying,
0: I want this battle. But uh, it's two feet tall, a foot and a half wide, and a thousand pages thick. Two thousand pages of you count. Two thousand sides. We don't make you know. books
2: like that anymore. Jeez. Yeah, I wish.
0: <laughs> that's, what, that's what the win's a winner. That's the size it's going to be. Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> we can hope. I do hope.
0: Uh, but uh, a description of the book is uh, it's got fine white uh, vellum bound between covers of bleached white leather with gold hinges and fastenings.
2: No, no wonder I've never seen a book like that. That sounds expensive. Yeah,
0: it's
2: pretty expensive.
0: <laughs> but it lasts, considering 1,000 pages, one, one, uh, one, you know, once each side. Each member gets one page, which we can imagine is one side of a page, to chronicle their adventures. 2,000 Kingsguard, that's, that's a page, that's like... An investment that's going to last you a long time.
2: I'd like to see a Kingsguard who makes it all of his to get two pages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the I'm first not. knight of the Guard that got two pages, and then someone will go for three, and it'll just get out ridiculous.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine Sir Paris and Selmy probably has a couple of pages, you know. Worth it, but...
2: <laughs> he could. Possibly. That's
0: why they kicked him out because he started his.
2: his <laughs> he to take he a page. page. <laughs> <laughs> that's the real reason. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's funny, because on their pages, on their individual pages, um, their personal arms are actually drawn on the top left side, their family crests. And then their arms of the Kingsguard is obviously on the bottom right. Um, These drawings are actually done by the septums themselves. So of those in the book, it's been said that some have been heroes, some weaklings, some knaves or cravens, most were only men, quicker and stronger uh, than most, more skilled with sword and shield, but still prey to pride, ambition, lust, love, anger, jealousy, greed for gold, hunger for power, and all those other feelings that afflicted lesser mortals. Um, the best of them over, overcame these flaws. They did their duty, and they died with their swords in their hands. The worst Well, the worst were the ones who played those games of thrones.
2: (laughs) That's where we should have the theme music play right now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Where is that when you need it? Well, it's it's interesting to remember that in the real world, history often remembers the villains more than the heroes. And we see a little bit of that here. Uh, There's not a long history of the Kingsguard, as we said. It's only been around 300 years. And we're talking about the history of Westeros being something that could potentially be something 8,000 or more years of history. So we're, it's a pretty small fraction. But, like I said, mo- not unlike the real world, there, are, there seem to be more stories. The vill- Sometimes the stories that the villains read last longer. They stay in their consciousness longer. Not always, but there's, for, in this case, certainly, we have more stories of failures and oath-breakings and scandalous things, mostly. Nothing terribly major as far as betrayal goes. Uh, or great failures, and that is partly because of we have less history on the early times, and partly because there was just less turmoil. There were only about, I think, four kings in the Targaryen dynasty in the first hundred years, and then it started to be a little quicker. The turnover was faster. Yeah. So, All right. it seems that most of these names that we have from earlier are uh, those were are rather the positive ones are from the ones that are more recently, and the negative are from the past. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, with that in mind, let's talk about some famous oath breakers.
2: Oh. So, <laughs> during
0: the, re- the reign of King Jaehaerys I, that's uh, Aegon Conqueror's grandson, f- pretty far back. In other words, oh, yeah. there was Sarah Lucamore Strong, who came to be known as Lucamore the Lusty. He not only broke the vow against marriage, he broke it three times. Wow. I don't know if he broke that three times at the same time. Did he have three wives at the same time? <laughs>
1: Did he just? <laughs> wow.
0: But he he also proceeded to break the oath against fathering children. Not only did he marry three times, he fathered children with each of his three wives. <laughs> he was eventually gelded by his own brothers and sent to the wall. Where I'm mean, maybe he, maybe he's one of the people that goes down to Molestown pretty often.
2: A lot of the listeners just crossed their legs. <laughs> in, oh yeah, I'm yeah, more yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, he
0: had three wives. <laughs>
1: Uh, he, Yeah, he, he was definitely a man-hooker.
2: <laughs> so, um, well, I figured once he had three wives and all his children, what could he possibly need that <laughs> thing for uh, anymore?
1: <laughs> well, and with that in mind, there was also another man. Uh, he was Sir Giles. Um, I'm hoping I pronounced that right. Giles or Giles. <laughs> who earned the nickname Great Hook for his treason. Familiar to Boris Blanc, who embarrassed himself and this happened in the Clash of Kings, and this would be in season two of the show. And if you don't recall, he's the one who actually surrounded himself during a fake attack while protecting the Prince Tommen. He was stripped of his cloak by Tyrion, but given it back by Tywin when they actually needed to replace the absence of the hound.
2: This would have been when, actually, when Tyrion was sending Tommen out of the city to be protected before the Battle of the Blackwater, just in case things went badly. Yeah. Similarly, there was a, a man named Sir Oravel the Open-handed, who was known to be a coward. But what greater treason really is there than slaying the king you were sworn to protect? So, Jaime Lannister kind of takes the cake. He's hard to top if you're looking for the biggest outrage. Yeah. But we'll get to him later. We're going like I said, we're trying to stay kind of chronological. So we'll come back to Jamie. Um, one of the there's there's a couple of aspects, two in particular that are important uh, for getting chosen to be in the Kingsguard in the first place. Some out, kind of more obvious things like we're talking about skill and, and honor, but there's also the question of birth. Uh, despite some notable exceptions, most Kingsguard are highborn. Uh, they they come from well-known families.
0: Ones that get training. Yeah. Be so
2: skilled. Exactly, that's a huge part of it. People coming up, when you come up as a child in a castle, you get to fight with a sword, you get taught by a master at arms, possibly by your father and your older brothers and your you know, other family members who have mm-hmm. been doing this for a long time. And, and but not everybody. Right, they pass these, these, these skills down from generation to generation. Common, So common folk who rise to this level are even more impressive than you might think. They're overcoming far more than just but their if birth. they were
0: raised in a castle.
2: Yeah, it'd be incredible to think of some of these, uh, say, Red Robert Flowers, Sir Addison Hill, and Sir Duncan the Tall. All three of these guys became Lord Commander, and they were bastard born. So, yeah, like I said, imagine if they'd had tra- a real training when they were young. You know, these guys could be mentioned alongside some of the some of the biggest names of all time. Um, so let's move yeah. on.
1: Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely be more on a on Sir Duncan the Tall later on. Uh, But a read-through of the names uh, we have shows a very high percentage of noble surnames.
0: Yeah. So along with the goats, a term I had never heard before, (laughs) but is apparently a real term. Yeah,
2: well, we're using it to refer to oath breakers and bad guys. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So
0: so along with the goats, we have what we are calling vague heroes, a term I have you heard before. (laughs) Okay. Okay. A guy who might be the polar opposite of the Kingslayer was Rhyam Redwine. Even now, only, there are only one or two guys mentioned more often than him, so it's fair to call him one of the all-time best. He rose to become Lord Commander, and he, and he was great at it, like, best Lord Commander. But then, somehow, in a rare but unheard of situation, he became Hand of the King. Think that'd be great, he'd be a great Hand of the Game. No, he was terrible. Sorry. He was the worst ever,
2: apparently. <laughs> One of the worst ever, apparently. Yeah. And we're not actually certain when this was. Uh, we do have a record of most of the people that served as Hand of the King, so we're able to kind of narrow down the range of the possibility where Ryan could have lived. Uh, probably early 100 AL, um, but maybe late 100 AL. I lean towards the, the later period, because as what we said before. There weren't a lot of opportunities for Kingsguard to shine in earlier days. There was just less going on. There was less turmoil. And, of course, there were also dragons. So <laughs> the King, the, the Kingsguard had an easier job. Who wants to threaten the king when they have all these dragons? So I tend to think, we tend to think as a group, I suppose, that Ryan Redwine lived. Uh, his heyday was around 180, 190 AL. Um but before, that would have been before the blackfire Rebellion, though, because we don't have any names, we don't have any mention of him during that period. So, blackfire Rebellion 194, so we're going to say in that area, right before that. But also, like I said, it could have been in the first part of that century. Anyway, we don't get too bogged down in that detail. Hmm. Yeah,
1: and uh, AL, of course, stands for uh, Aegon's Landing. So when we say, like, 100 AL, that's, you know, 100 years after Aegon's Landing.
2: Right, right. So that would be still 100 ALs 200 years ago in, in from the start of Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah. Um, and so this is perhaps why we don't hear many of the great deeds of King's Guard from back in the early days. Um, there is that passage of time, but there's also the implied lack of threats with, you know, the fact that they did have dragons. And a name her almost often, as Ryan Redwine, is the Demon of Derry. Very, very intimidating name. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very colorful name. Um, but other than that, he came from the House Dairy, a house noble for his loyalty to House Targaryen. We really don't know much of anything. The term demon does make us think, though, that he was particularly feared, and probably not a very nice guy, either. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: some of the other names that we hear that we don't know what we don't I not quite when to place them, but they're very uh, evocative names, let's say, are The Great Heart, I mm. don't even know who he was, really, but how, The Great Heart. Just a cool
2: name, a cool that's name. all we have. <laughs>
0: Jeffrey yep. Never Yields nor cross.
2: I <laughs> didn't give up, I suppose. <laughs>
0: Michael Mertens, The White Owl.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I like to imagine that long Tom Costain, who served for 60 years... In this did so in this era when the Kings Guard wasn't challenged so much when they still had dragons. There,
2: that was. I was just interjecting. That, that must mean that he was served until he was about eighty, at least, yeah. and possibly later. That's just kind of unheard of. Battery yeah. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh,
0: There's also Alan Connington, the Pale Griffin. He's a former lo- Lord Commander. He's pretty highly regarded, though we don't actually know when he served. Uh, another famous Lord Commander that we do know quite a bit more about was Kristen Cole, who's also <laughs> known as the Kingmaker. Kingmaker. Yeah. Instead of executing the King's will by crowning his daughter Rhaenyra, Cole crowned Prince Aegon, making him King Aegon II. This, of course, led to the Dance of the Dragons, which Whoops. we have a whole episode about.
2: Yes, we do. Very One of our earlier episodes. An
0: episode we're going to have to redo when the new The Princess and the Queen novella comes exactly.
2: out. Exactly. We've got some Absolutely. fun redoing that one. Uh, so well, this, this Targaryen Civil War, The Dance of the Dragons, while it was ha- going, uh, it became a difficulty for the Kingsguard. You've got two different legitimate royal claimants. Whose side do you take? You can't really... Uh, it's hard to say that... One is correct and one isn't, especially much later when there a lot of the details are lost. Uh, so this is going to cause some Kingsguard to be labeled simultaneously as hero and traitor, based on who they fought for. And, of course, the ones who are most remembered as heroes tend to be the side that won. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, I think Rhaenyra was the right I, I guess, person.
2: I think so, too. The king decides the king who succeeds so.
0: Will said so. Who cares That's about right. Andal custom? They're Valyrians.
2: Exactly. I, I agree with that. Right. <laughs> this is, of course, when the aforementioned Sir Eric and Sir Arik uh, fought. One of them uh, supported Princess Rhaenyra and the royal will. The other supported Aegon II um, and all custom, and his lord commander. But they both died, so uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, and, of course, Lord Commander Cole didn't survive this war either. Uh, it was extremely bloody, and it didn't, didn't do good for him.
0: did good for Aegon.
2: Yeah, I suppose. But he died, too. (laughs) Not not too long after. Um, Jumping far ahead in time, just for a minute, we're going to stay in chronology most of the time, but some of these examples are just too similar, and we had to throw them out there. We're talking again about the scenario of what happens when you have multiple kings. Very familiar scenario for us, the War of the Five Kings itself. Uh, A lot of Kingsguard parallels, not actual Kingsguard. Robb Stark didn't name a Kingsguard. As we said, that's an and-all-custom, yeah. sort of. Uh, it's a Faith of the Seven thing. Rob coming from the north, worshipping the old gods. It's not the kind of thing they would just jump on and do for themselves. Uh, same thing with Baelon Greyjoy, who found himself. No reason for him to name a Guard. That doesn't seem like That seems very un like to have sworn defenders. Yeah. It sounds very, like, who? that sounds yeah. like something weak. But Renly had a Rainbow Guard, um, <laughs> and it's... Pretty not notable. a rainbow
0: guard in the show, though. No, just, it's too controversial. Yeah. Rainbow is <laughs> a gay symbol. Yeah, it's not. It's meant to. It's meant to symbolize the faith of the seven, which they have different colors. Right. For each of the different things, and I, I don't. I guess George didn't actually mean to do that. It seems like quite a coincidence that Renly, who's considered gay, that he has a rainbow guard, but
2: he didn't. He George said, actually said. said yeah. yeah,
0: he said he didn't mean to, but it's. Quite a coincidence.
2: He said that Ramley just really liked bright colors, and so he decided this is what he liked to do. <laughs> I,
1: I, I think he's backstepping on that, backpedaling on that one. but Maybe. maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Of the Rainbow Guard, though, we had obviously, um, so Loris Terrell, uh, in the books, you know, Loris uh, joined Joffrey's Kingsguard at the time of Marjorie's wedding. And uh, this is kind of a little spoilerific. Um, you know,
2: maybe that might be slightly spoilery, but if right, it's going to yeah, happen, it may not happen in the show at all. If it does, you know, it's. Yeah. It has yeah, already it's happened in the movies. I don't deal. think it's a big deal, so. Yeah. Sorry, and,
1: uh, if you remember correctly, he's also the one that gave Sansa the Rose in, I believe it was the first or second episode of. Season yeah.
2: One. yeah. In the
0: latest episode, Santa had a, t- a discussion with him where she was just fangirling all over the place. <laughs> he, does <laughs> not, yeah. he
2: does not remember at all. Yeah. Of
1: course. Oh, yeah. He has no clue. Yeah, I mean, that was just his last episode. He,
0: but of course, he's broke. He oh,
1: he's did? Like, oh, okay.
2: Yeah, he's, he's a little sad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm
1: wondering if maybe Renly's Rainbow Guard should be called the Queen's Guard.
2: <laughs> anyway. All right, <laughs> anyway,
1: so, uh, so uh, uh, some of the other members we have is uh, Robar Royce. Emin Coy, I'm hoping I pronounced that right, C-Y. No <laughs> um, and then we have Gara Morrigan. Of course, we have Brianna Tarth. You know, she's a big, burly woman. The model, I guess you say, in the show, which is S- <laughs> Amy. She clearly, she clearly got that position because Renly waived the requirement of what it takes to be a knight, because, you know, she's a woman. And then, of course, we have Bryce Caron, and then Harmon Crane. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: He
0: s- pretty well represented. One
2: funny thing I want to throw in there is that it also doesn't happen in the show, but it's a, it's an interesting moment in the books. Eamon Kai or Eamon Coy, whatever his name is, and Robar Royce are killed by Sir Loris when he when he sees that they have failed to protect Renly. He uh, when he arrives and sees them lying there, he kind of <laughs> goes berserk yeah, with true. grief and kills them. So after the assassination yeah, immediately after. They didn't bother to portray that in the show. I can understand why, but it's a, it's an interesting little tidbit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, Daenerys also has a king's guard, or a queen's guard, as it's called. She obviously has Jorah Mormont. She has her blood riders. In the book, she has three blood riders. In the show, she killed Ricaro, <laughs> I guess because he probably had to do some other shows. He was getting he's, yeah. he's getting more popular. So, they killed Ricaro off. So, in the show, she only has the first two. Uh, Ago, and Jogo. and now Barristan the Bold. We're going to talk about him soon.
1: Oh,
2: and, yeah.
0: but also in the books is an interesting. It's not a spoiler because he's not happening in the show. <laughs> Barriston brings a man with him called Strong Bellwaz, who's sorely missed by all fans.
2: Strong Bellwaz was a big <gasps> man. So, great, a great warrior. I'm be yeah, he's we're all kind so of sad he's not going to be in the Very show. Sad.
0: But, but, oh well, what are you going to do? I Strong really was-
1: expected to see him.
0: Yeah. But Strong Bellas eventually does join her Queen's Guard, giving her a total of three, four, five people in there in the books and, I guess, three in the show.
2: That leaves uh, a spot or two open, depending on how you interpret it. I wonder who those those other two will be. Um, If you you folks have some ideas or wishes of who you'd like to see in Danny's Queen's Guard, post them on our Facebook wall or tweet us that. Tweet them at (laughs) us. But getting back to the Dance of the Dragons, that's how we uh, started this particular thread of discussion. And the da- it had a huge effect. We mentioned that one of the important things made the Kingsguard's job much easier was dragons. That was a huge thing. And after the Dance of the Dragons, within a few years, really, after that, there were technically one or two dragons still alive, and you know, they were babies, and they were kind of irrelevant. Uh, within that short time frame, anyhow, there were no more dragons. That dramatically changed the... Targaryen dynasty and their outlook for the future. Oh, yeah. Uh, immediately, it started to play out. There were rebellions aplenty in the la- in the 170 years uh, that have followed the Dance of the Dragons. There's tons of them, and before that, we can hardly name anything. Um, part of that is the things being lost to history. Part of that is George not writing that for us yet, not telling us. <laughs> but... More so, I think it's just because there wasn't as much of the King's card to do. He just didn't have enough drama to deal with. Who's and, re- yeah, who's going
0: to rebel against a guy with a dragon? Yeah,
2: like, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. Except for another guy with dragons, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, one particular example is King the I, who died in battle at around 232 AL. Uh, he fell in battle to an outlaw lord which most people just assume is a blackfire lord because the blackfires were still a problem for having been a problem about 40 years before that and were still a problem for another almost 30 years after that so that's a it's an assumption that a lot of people make but george has explicitly said that no it was not a blackfire rebellion that makar died in so uh, certainly the King's Guard would have been ashamed of that. But it's very noteworthy. <laughs> they, allowed, they allowed the king to die yes. in battle. But that's very noteworthy because it's the first time that we know of that a king fell in battle. And when I say that we know of, there isn't much room for us to be wrong about that. We know how nearly all the other kings died. There's a few possibilities. But remember also that there were fewer kings. There were The kings tended to have long reigns now. We get to the point where Maekar was only king for a little while before that, and it, it, it's just a bunch of shorter reigns. So, uh, basically, more. Re- but if you sum all that together, you have more rebellions. That means more battles. That means more glory for the knights of the king's guard, and the mm. most glorious of all the king's guard in history, perhaps, is Prince Eamon, a Targaryen himself, named after, or rather, named Maester Eamon was named for him, rather. Uh, he was known as the Dragon Knight. This is, due to his extreme skills, he, he gained this nickname, and because of all the dramatic events that he played a part of, you'll see that he was just a part of kind of everything, every kind of dramatic story you can be a part of, he found a way to be a part of it. His, his life was marked not only by achievement, but also by drama and a lot of things that really make for good stories. Yeah, it's like, uh, I, I wonder if George shouldn't go back and write just about him. That'd be it. Yeah, I mean
1: it, it, it's like you know, uh, if, if they had their own soap opera, it'd be called Add the Stone Turns. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, with all that in mind, he is probably we're going to say it the most famous knight in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. Just from if you, you know, just from a outside of the box kind of perspective, if you look at the e-books, if you just search for Prince Eamon the Dragon Knight, his name comes uh-huh. up a lot. I mean, really, like. For a guy that died a while ago and who doesn't factor in the storyline at all, he's, his name comes up a lot. It's really kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. He joined the King's Guard at age 17, one of the youngest people to ever join it, you know, second to Jamie Lannister and... Um,
2: Roland Darklyn.
0: Yeah, Roland Darklyn. that's right. Uh, wow. So, very young age, he was already an amazing fighter, he was low in the succession at this time. You got to realize that at this time there were a lot of Targaryens. There were a ton of Targaryens. He was fourth in the line of succession. Fourth in the line being like, ever like all, like every, like three of those four people could have kids that would supplant him. It
2: could you know. easily go for more than four. Yeah. Or two, you know, way a bit.
0: So like th- three of those, he had, There was young Daron the Young Dragon, uh, Balor, Balor the Blessed, and then uh, his father, King Viserys, was before him. And then his brother, of course, Aegon the Unworthy. So all of those people could have had kids, but as it turns out, uh, you know, quite a few of them didn't. Wow. Uh, they, like, so all four of those people actually ascended to the throne because the king Viserys became king of Viserys. So Prince, a- Prince Aemon served under four different kings.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because uh, he actually wielded the ancient Targaryen blade known as Dark Sister. Which was previously wielded by Aegon the Conqueror's sister, his sister wife, I guess, uh, Visenya, and uh, this is you know that's the same one that Arya speaks of to Tywin in uh, the show at Harrenhal. Yeah, you're right. And uh, and it's possible that he acquired it before or after joining the King's Guard. It may have been a gift from the King himself, given upon his taking of the White Cloak. Yeah, it's not like he'd get to pass it on to his kids. Yeah, 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 no, it's not easily given out. (laughs) Um, Since he was eventually named Lord Commander, it appears that he was quite a capable leader. Um, He fought in the conquest of Dorne, helping his cousin, King Daron I, unite Westeros, at least for a little bit. Um, The conquest was brief, and Dorne was soon in revolt. Uh, th- this young dragon was also unable to subdue the Dornish a second time and ended up losing 40,000 men in the process. Um, it, although it could be you know 40,000 in one with the, King Daron himself
2: dying. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. All of our Oakheart, a.k.a. all of our, the Green Oak of the Kingsguard, died alongside the king. But even the Dragon Knight survived. We're not really sure how, or maybe he wasn't there. That seems unlikely, because he did get captured. Um, We're told that he was at one point suspended over a pit of vipers, but this actually appeared to be a metaphor for uh a pit of vipers. So it could be that he was literally hung over a pit of vipers. That seems kind of like... Bond villain-esque. It's kind of a weird thing to do. i not just going yeah. to just kill the guy or throw him in or I don't know. It's a very it'd be a strange thing to do to such a heroic figure anyway. But in any case, the part about him being captured is not metaphor. He was certainly captured at some point. Um, it seems likely, like I said, that he was captured at the same point when King Garon was killed. But maybe he was incapacitated or you know, just, just overpowered and disarmed somehow.
0: Somewhere else.
2: They may have wanted to capture him specifically because he has a lot of value um, as a hostage, and that certainly played a role when uh, his cousin, King Baylor, now ascending to the throne, now that King Garon was dead, he negotiated peace with Toran. Baylor the Blessed was a, all about peace. The guy, oh yeah, well, <laughs> he wanted to replace the ravens with white doves. Because <laughs> he, <laughs> I mean, this guy was crazy. Yeah, <laughs> he, I, he, he, was he, walked, he apparently walked the Bone Way, which is this harsh mountain Uh-oh. pass and going into the deserts barefoot as a way of atoning for his brother's attempted conquest of Dorne. And he so he managed this walk. Apparently, was, I don't know, his feet probably got pretty messed up. Yeah, but, but but it worked ultimately. Maybe the the walk. I don't know if that helped. <laughs> but ultimately, he did negotiate peace with Dorne, and he did negotiate the release of his cousin, the Dragon Knight. Uh, that may have been an important bargaining chip for the Dornish, saying, hey, this guy, we know how much he means to you. We know he's a sacred guardian of the faith, a guardian, you know, guardian of the king and all that. He's got all this sacred duty. So... It's pretty easy to see that Baylor would value him not only because he's kin, but also because he's this you know holy warrior. Uh, the way Baylor sees these things, not a stretch at all.
0: Yeah. So, but we hear no more. acts Baylor, you know, stood for peace, gets Amon back, and then we hear no more of him during Baylor's reign. But that's not so surprising because Baylor just wanted everything to be peaceful. So there, it's pretty unlikely that uh, any any big battles would happen there. He didn't. He, we don't even think that he allowed tournaments. Probably not. And you know, he wasn't. I mean, wasn't picking any real fights. And uh, but we, as we said, he lived through four kings. So we heard about one king. Nothing during the second. Nothing really during Viserys. But then, by the time his his brother Aegon the Unworthy took the throne, there are some interesting things that happened there. Amon Aemon was said to be in love with his sister Nereus. Nereus was set to marry Aegon, and so it's said that Aemon that cried during their wedding.
1: Yeah, and we, we really don't know if, uh, if, if they actually had an affair. Uh, it's widely believed, though. Uh, whatever the case, though, the Dragonite certainly loved his sister Nereus deeply. And he went to great lengths to protect and even honor her. Uh, in one particular instance, after Nerys was insulted, Prince Amon entered a tourney as a mystery knight named, appropriately enough, the Knight of Tears. Uh, and he actually won the tourney and chose Nerys to be the ceremonial queen of love and beauty. And that's, you know, when the knight rides up and, Hands a flower to the prettiest girl in the, in the audience, or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm. And what what uh, Eamon was apparently worried about was that Agon the Fourth, the king at the time, and his brother, and also we should repeat his nickname, the Be Unworthy, because he was the terrible king. It was oh, a Bad yeah. guy. Oh. He, people, he did whatever he wanted, uh, which usually which usually was sleeping around a lot and having. Oh really. my god. So, uh, he. Was apparently going to name one of uh, his mistresses as the queen of love and beauty instead of his wife Neri. So uh, Eamon got wind of this and decided to take action. And because he's was such an amazing badass, he actually won this tournament. Uh, so there you go. But but uh, getting more dramatic and scandalous, a, a frequent consider the fre- a frequent natural extension of a royal affair, or the rumor of a royal affair, is the question of parentage. So, the question of parentage in Eamon the Dragon Knight's situation is particularly huge. Uh, remember that who he was rumored to be having an affair with was the Queen. This is it's, We think of it as his sister that he was in love with, but this is also the Queen. So, when uh, when Daron II, later known as Daron the Good, King uh not to be confused with Daron the First, the Young Dragon, he was the first son of Aegon the Unworthy and Nereus. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he was fathered by Prince Aemon instead of Aegon the Unworthy. Very Detractors, awesome. yeah, exa- Detractors claimed that Prince Aemon could not have fathered a bookish man like King Darron. That was a big part of what caused the rebellion. Some people sided with Daemon Blackfire not only because he had the sword and these other reasons, but because he was a badass, and Daron was like a bookish belt, a big-bellied yeah. little guy that, you know, liked Dornish things, and that was, they didn't, you know, the, the, a lot of the court didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So this, this in a sense, kind of started the ball rolling on the Blackfyre Rebellion.
0: Yeah, but Prince Haman never lived to see the Blackfyre Rebellion. Aww. Uh so Sometime before, during Aegon the Unworthy, well, you knew what was going to happen. Aegon, they said, he lived through four kings. Oh, yeah. Aegon yeah. The Unworthy, <laughs> but, uh, but at some time before the Blackfire Rebellions, during Aegon's uh, reign, uh, one of Aegon's sworn brothers, the Kingsbar- Kingsguard, Sir Terence Toyne, who was considered to be a very handsome man, he was found in bed with one of Aegon the Forest's many mistresses, so of <laughs> course, maybe he didn't think he cared that much. <laughs> but, so, Toyn and the mistress claimed to be in love, and whether that was true or not, or just an excuse, but they claimed to be in love. Aegon didn't care, he dismembered Toyn piece by piece while his mistress watched. The mistress, It was his mistress, well, he must have cared about her a little bit, but he made her watch, yes. and then he executed her. So... Obviously, two brothers, his real brothers, not his sworn Kingsguard brothers, were very upset, and they tried to take revenge, much like, you know, with uh, Eddard, you know, and all them taking revenge for Rick Hard and Brandon, being like, they tried to do something like that. it failed, though, because they they, they tried to assassinate the king, and instead they killed Prince Aemon, the Knight, who died defending his king. A very noble way to die. It's,
2: it's, and the twin oh brothers God. were both killed as well. Yeah,
0: they were killed too. <laughs> so they they just failed.
2: They, they uh, yeah. Aegon the pretty gruesome way to go. That's,
0: yeah, really. <laughs>
2: <That's>, the kingdom <laughs> lucked out. He's the guy the, the least worthy there to survive that. Oh well, <laughs> that's how it goes. Sometimes the choice of a king's guard actually has huge political ramifications. It's not just a matter of picking the best fighter and the most honorable fighter, the guy who's the most capable, it goes beyond that sometimes. Oh, yeah. One of the best examples is Willem Wilde. Willem Wilde himself didn't have a particularly noteworthy career as a Kingsguard. Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit, but mostly the decision to name him to the Kingsguard is mostly what history is going to remember him for. Uh, he was given his cloak by King Daron II, who we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one who possibly was fathered by Eamon the Dragon Knight, but or probably not, but maybe. King Daron the Good's father, again, the IV, had promised a certain Quentin Ball, Sir Quentin Ball, the red, who was the Red Keep's master at arms, a pretty prestigious position. He had promised Quentin Ball a spot on the Kingsguard whenever one opened up. Well... One did open up eventually, but not during King Aegon's life. So a spot opened up during the next regime. Well, King Diron either didn't know about the promise or ignored it, and instead he names the aforementioned Sir Willem Wilde. <laughs> that didn't work out so well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sir Quentin, uh, he had apparently uh, been counting on this promise. Uh, he actually went as far as to send his wife to the Silent Sisters.
2: The silent sisters cut out women's tongues, don't forget.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. That way they that's why they're silent. That's what the he
2: sent his wife to. Yes.
1: <laughs> he sent his own wife to Silent Sisters, where they cut her tongue out and say, Okay, go dress dead people. <laughs> and uh, Sir Quentin, um, it's very possible that he had much do as bitter still in convincing Damon Blackfire, also, also, you know, Aegon IV and Dana Targaryen's bastards, to rebel, starting the first Blackfire rebellion. Um, uh, Quentin Fireball, as he's also known, even rescued Damon himself from the King's Guard when the King Damon ordered Damon's arrest. Oh, I'm sorry, King Daron ordered Damon's arrest. Yeah. Um, let's see what else uh, yeah, he went on to win several battles for the Black Blackfires um, all, all before he died
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear, check breakfast, lunch and dinner, check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help for your financial to-dos Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
1: So as for William himself, it's unknown whether or not he served under another king. But Daron reigned for 25 years and died during the Great Spring sickness. So it's pretty, pretty probable that he didn't. But he did serve a long tenure. He survived the Fire Rebellion and was still alive over 12 years later. And he may even survive the battle, though we just don't hear any more of him after that.
0: Yeah, we, we actually see Sir Willem in Duncan Egg books, uh, along with two other Kingsguard that we don't know much about, but I'll mention them, Donald of Duskendale. And we're all in Craig Hall, and I won't talk about any more about what we see, because you should just read those.
2: Mm-hmm. Highly recommended. Yes.
0: But uh, he did likely fight at the Battle of Redgrass Field, which was the largest battle of the Black-White Fire Rebellion. Because mm-hmm. uh, Prince Baylor Breakspear, uh, the Crown Prince, his forces were, were uh, comprised of Dornishmen and Stormlanders. So perhaps Sir Willem, who was a Stormlander, was in that force, uh, also since he was a Kingsguard, and certainly, Prince Balor, as heir to the throne, would have had at least one or two white swords by his side in this battle.
2: Yes, yeah, Sir uh, William Miles is a natural fit there, being Stormlander himself. But we don't know. Um, one who, another one who was definitely there in that battle was, uh, but not so close to uh, Prince Baylor himself, was Sir Gawain Corbray. He fought an epic duel versus Damon Blackfire himself. It, notable in particular because. Both combatants wielded Valyrian steel blades. That is, uh, we're told that when the swords clashed against each other, they could be heard across the battlefield. No doubt that's an exaggeration, but it goes to show that this particular duel is, you know, is really hallowed, really thought of uh, as as a huge thing and remembered by a lot of people. Corbray eventually, uh, Corbray was wielding Lady Forlorn, uh, and Damon Blackfire, of course, was wielding Blackfire. And... Uh, they, they fought for a while. Um, yeah, yeah, The
1: duel was like,
2: practically an hour long. God, well, that's, that's, it's just absurd to think about a battle and being an hour long. These guys were on horseback, riding back and forth, smacking at each other, wearing yeah. full armor. I mean, g- the endurance—it's horrific. <laughs> I
0: can't even here, imagine yeah. watching that for an hour.
2: <laughs> 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 so Corbray was severely injured uh, when Blackfire landed a blow that just cut right through his helmet. Uh, finally, Damon got the upper hand in the battle, and that was it basically for sir Corbray he wasn't killed by this blow although apparently he may have been blinded by it um, but he didn't die but he did his job he allowed the battle to develop to the point where things had taken uh, had, things had developed well for the loyalists and that that's what a soldier is supposed to do he's he's supposed to if you sacrifice your life to win the battle you know that's that you've done your job uh, so in a sense he really did do his job even though he lost that duel now recall that after the Blackfires failed in usurping the throne, they tried four more times. But prior to any of those secondary attempts, we have hints that the Kingsguard were held close despite problems throughout the realm. So there's not a lot of stories to do with them in this in this period after the Blackfire Rebellion. Um, this was such, the threat of the Blackfires was such that uh, the hand of the king, Bloodraven, was keeping eye on the east. He was worried about Blackfires invading again. He was worried about what Bittersteel would do. Um, he knew they were still very capable of mounting a, a serious threat. Yeah, and we're told that he largely ignored some of the other problems in the realm because he was so worried about the Blackfyres coming back. The Great Spring Sickness had just come on the heels of uh, another period of problems and drought, and there was a huge Greyjoy rebellion led by Dagon Greyjoy uh, that ravaged the east, uh, rather the west coast, and. Yeah. It, Bloodraven Raven didn't react to that for a while. He, waited, he took his time responding because he was so worried. Um, but during this time, there was one important man who had not yet joined the Kingsguard. He was going to eventually. Uh, he started to make a ba- name for himself around this time.
0: Yeah. Fans of the Dunkin' Egg series will recognize him Woo-hoo! as one of the popular characters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, he was alive at this time, and he eventually became a Kingsguard himself in the books, not covering his Kingsguard times, so read the books, we'll talk about that. But, <laughs> yeah. person, Sir Duncan the Tall, or Dunk, he Dunk. was, he was obviously bare tall, he was an orphan boy who rose from the slums of Flea Bottom to become the Lord Commander of Aegon the Unlikely. Kingsguard, Kingsguard you could say he was Lord Commander the Unlikely.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but uh, he was friends with Aegon long before he became king, and Aegon tr- trusted him completely. But very sadly, he died a lot well, Maybe not so sadly. He died alongside his lifetime, lifelong. At least friend. They died together. Yeah, though. they died together. Uh, and many, like many others, are not so happy that his die- whole family died uh, during the tragedy of Summerhall which is, we don't want to delve too much into those kind of things, different topics, you
2: know. Now, we're not certain, but we think that the death of, of Duncan and maybe another Kingsguard or two who might have been there, there were a lot of royal family members at, at Summer Hall, so it, it's possible there are more there. It opened up a spot for this up-and-coming hero, one of yeah. our favorites.
1: Well, we have Barristan Selmy, also known as in the Bowl. And, uh... Those who, who watch TV show, he was the one that was kicked out of the King's Guard by Joffrey, or, or technically by Cersei. He was actually the one who actually jousted against Prince Duncan the Small, with him the name in the Bowl. And this was at the age of ten. Because he was ten years old, he actually entered this tourney and competed. He was, of course, disguised, but not very well. The army... <laughs> The armor on him barely fit, and he even could, couldn't even keep his lance up all right, you know, to, to but, compete.
0: But he didn't let that discourage him, even though he, uh, you know, he's 10 years old and he, this stuff didn't fit in. By the time he was 16 years old, six years later, he managed to, on horse, both Prince Duncan the Small and Lord Commander Duncan the Tall, which is no small uh-huh. feat. And this earned him his knighthood.
2: Small and tall feet.
0: It's a small, yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but this earned him his knighthood. And then, uh, shortly later, uh, pretty shortly later, within a few years later, he fought in the War of the Nine Penny Kings, which oh, was wow. when Meleese the Monstrous, uh, Meleese mm-hmm. Blackfire, he was the last of Blackfires. He, we talked about him before um, in our last episode, actually. I'll say again, he's a, he was a huge, monstrous man who supposedly ate his twin. While in the womb, Uh, clearly not the case, but he had a a twin, he had a second head and a huge upper body and just monstrous Mm. looking man. So not the most pleasant person to fight, even Mm. if he wasn't that skilled. So Neli's teamed up with these other eight men in Essos to help each other accomplish their goals. You know, to take over these certain cities and eventually conquer Westeros.
1: The
2: Band of Nine.
0: Yes, the Band of Nine. Yep. And so Barristan ended up fighting Melis in single combat while uh, in the Stepstones, which are a chain of islands that uh, lead from uh, Dorne to Essos, you can see right there. killed Melis, though, and ended the male, the male Blackfire line.
2: Mm-hmm. So Aegon V, uh, once again, the king at the time, he won this war. But shortly afterwards, the aforementioned tragedy of Summerhall occurred. Uh, So that killed not only Aegon, but Lord Commander Duncan. And that's why we believe that uh, the spot was open for Sir Barristan. Because
0: he took the White shortly after the war, like within maybe six months to a year of the war ending.
2: Right, so it fits pretty well. uh, Because that's also probably roughly when Summerhall happened. So uh, now, Gerald Hightower, uh, known as the White Bull for his extraordinary strength, he's a big guy, uh, he was named by the new Lord Commander or he, rather, he was named the Lord commander by King Jaehaerys II, who took over for Aegon V. Mm-hmm. And that's when Barristan joined the Kingsguard as well, roughly. So, uh, like I said before, it's possible other Kingsguard died during the Summerhall tragedy. We're not really sure, but... It would have been guarding. It, it, it seems not unlikely. We don't really know, though. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Sir Barristan, just an amazing fellow. We've already talked about a couple of amazing things he did. And it, it just goes it just goes on and on. We're not done yet.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the thing about Sir Barristan, uh, there's a great quote that shows his value, and that's, quote, unquote, Sir Barristan was the Lord Commander of Robert Baratheon's Kingsguard. Tyrion reminded pointedly, he and Jamie are the only survivors of Ares Targaryen's seven. The small folk talk of him in the same way, they talk of Sir Wind of the Mirror Shield and Prince Amon, the Dragon Knight. What do you imagine they think when they see in the Bold riding beside Robb Stark or Stannis Baratheon?
2: Or Dan? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. He didn't consider that at the time, did he? But, of course, mm-hmm. he hardly knew she existed, probably.
0: Kay.
2: So... G- the, the realm of the reign, rather, of jaharis is... There's not a whole lot we can speak to there as far as deeds of the Kingsguard. But Bears and the Bold is still around, uh, when Ares took over, of course. And here's where we get to a really fantastic story. The Defiance of Duskendale. Lord Darklyn of Duskendale refused to pay taxes. Uh, he wanted a charter, wanted more rights for his people. Mm-hmm. What insolence. Yeah, really. <laughs> Ares was trying to be a strong, independent king at this time because uh, this is around the time when Tywin had really been... Tywin had been around for a while, and he had really overshadowed Ares, and mm-hmm. Ares was kind of jealous of how well Tywin was doing the job. So so Ares wanted to kind of do the job himself a bit, so Ares took a couple Kings Kingsguard, one or two, and marched some ar- an army up to Duskendale to deal with it himself. And should have taken Tywin there, buddy, because <laughs> Lord Dennis managed to capture Ares, and... Lord uh, dus- Lord Darkland's uh, master at arms, Simon Hollard, actually killed Sir Gawain Gaunt, which who was one of the Kingsguard at the time. Uh, at this uh, the Dunfort is the name of the the fort overlooking the town of Duskendale. I really this like is that where name. the Dunfort, yeah, it's pretty cool. And this is uh, during this is, during this whole altercation of capturing King Ares, uh, Simon Hollard kills Sir Gawain Gaunt. Now Tywin was camped outside, he didn't know what to do he realized that if he stormed the town, Barristan would, rather not Barristan, but uh, Lord Darkland would just kill the king. He said so, so. He said so. It was a standoff. It was basically you know, it was a threat.
0: Well, you got a hostage. Great hostage. Yes. Yeah,
2: so what, is, what can be done? No so this is the point when we come back to Sir
1: Barristan. And all of his great deeds, this is perhaps his most impressive one. Tywin actually decided that he had no choice but to storm the town. But Barristan, the bold, persuaded him that a covert operation was probably worth the attempt. Barristan snuck into Dunfort under the cover of darkness, where he slew Simon Hollard, avenging his brother, Gwaine Gaunt. At some point, though, uh, he did take an arrow wound, but he was able to still free the king from the dungeon and escape with both of their lives.
2: That's some serious ninja action commando stuff right there. just jo- How did Joffrey give this guy up? I mean, really.
1: <laughs> I know, right? So yeah. So, in the aftermath uh, of all of this, Ser uh, Barristan pleaded for the life of little Dantos Hollard, and Ares let him live, as he could not refuse his savior. And, of course, you know, this is Sir Dantos, the drunkard, who appeared at uh, Joffrey's name day in the TV show. He's the one was slobbering around and was almost executed on the spot until Sansa actually stepped in and said, oh, no, you can't. And he was like, what, can't? And the Hound actually backed him up, backed her up, I should say, and said, no, yeah. bad luck to actually execute somebody on your name day.
2: <laughs> even,
1: even even if you're going to execute them with wine. <laughs> <laughs> So he has oh, we'll, we'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> so, although he did execute every other Holland and Darkland, however, ending the Darkland line.
0: And how Darkland's extinction is particularly significant in Kingsguard history as they had seven members of their house selected to wear the white cloak.
2: That's the number they, one all time.
0: They, they, yeah. they could outfit an entire Kingsguard with their family members. <laughs> uh so around, but around five years later, after the Defiance of Duskendale, uh in around 281, there were some outlaws uh, operating out of the Kingswood, and you know where Kingswood is. Obviously, it's very close to King's Landing.
2: South of King's Landing.
0: Yeah, you know. Uh, so uh, they were they were kidnapping several nobles, and they just kept evading capture for a little while. Uh, I don't. I wonder who they kidnapped, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. so Ares decided to send some soldiers, led of course by. Kingsguard members to uh, take care of this Kingswood Brotherhood, they called themselves. Notably, Jamie Lannister was there, but he was just a, just a squire to Lord Sumner Craikhal, along, uh, along with a fray.
2: He wasn't quite a Kingsguard member yet. No.
0: So, uh, uh, Aerys dispatched his Kingsguard there. Uh, notably, the, 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 at least there might have been a couple more, but the ones we know of, the ones that distinguished themselves, were uh, Barristan Selmy, Lord Commander Gerald Hightower, and...
2: Sir Arthur Dane, The Sword of the Morning. Uh, The Sword of the Morning is a title, not uh, something that he achieved for himself, specifically. It's it's, it's not given out commonly, but it's any member of House Dane worthy of it gains that title, and of course they get to wield the Great Sword Dawn as part of holding that title-slash-office. Dawn itself forged from the heart of a falling star. We, know we mentioned that on some previous episodes, but it's just so cool that why would we not say it again? <laughs> uh, Sir Arthur Dane was also Prince Rhaegar's closest friend. Keep that in mind throughout the rest of this narrative and throughout later, because that's going to be important. He was considered a peerless warrior, perhaps the best fighter of his generation. Uh, George R. R. Martin tells us that Barristan Selmy versus Arthur Dane is a toss-up. But, Berest Selmy fighting Sir Arthur Dane, with Sir Arthur Dane having Dawn, gives Sir Arthur Dane the advantage. Dawn is was just too great of a weapon. So, uh, all thing, all other things equal, they're about equal fighters. But with Dawn, forget about it. That just gives Dane too much of an edge. So, he was even greater than, than Berestan in a sense. Uh, also, he was younger, so that's part of the issue. Um, they didn't exactly have their they didn't coincide, you know, their twenties didn't coincide with each other. So <laughs> but um it, it's interesting to point out that the fact that he's the best fighter of his generation, we get that we get that news not just from a lot of people, but from uh, specifically from Jamie.
1: So even Jamie, I mean Jamie Lannister is you know, as extremely arrogant as he is. Uh, he's considered to be, he considered, you know, Arthur Dane to be one of the deadliest of Ares Targaryen's uh, seven, you know,
2: Kingsguard. Uh, Jamie being so arrogant, I guess that really says a lot. Oh, yeah. So Sir Arthur Dane was also honorable. He was known for being honorable and very disciplined. He, he set exacting standards for those under him, but he was very fair. He, he, he wasn't a guy that... that uh, took charge and was imperious. He was a guy that took charge and was thorough and maybe a bit of a disciplinarian, but he was also fair.
1: Yeah, it's pretty likely that he uh, um, would have succeeded Gerald Hightower as Lord Commander, and this is evidenced by, you know, Gerald actually seeking command to him when he, when he was
2: wounded. And this occurred during the, these same efforts to uh, put down the Kingswood Brotherhood. Uh, Sir Gerald was kind of shot in the hand by an arrow, uh, apparently by Ulmer, who is still alive. Ulmer uh, survived the fall of the King's Brotherhood and wound up on the wall. He's still around even now. So that's pretty cool. That guy's still around. Um, but anyway, the wound to Gerald, his sword hand, apparently kept, took him out of action, and Sir Arthur took over. Uh, Arthur brought many of the small folk living in the King's Wood under the King's protection which undermined the support for the brotherhood because the brotherhood were sort of championing these small folk sort of like robin hood uh, giving you know okay. taking robbing the rich and giving to the poor the small folk of the kingswood were sort of yeah. underrepresented maybe not unlike the people in, in duskendale i don't know but uh, normally when the royal forces come through an area they can just take what they want in the name of the king and say hey give us food give us supplies give us shelter because the king owned everything. But Arthur went about it in a different way. He took from the small folk, but he paid them for what he took and for their services. And this started to shift public opinion away from the Kingswood Brotherhood back towards the royals, and especially towards Sir Arthur Dane specifically, because he was treating them really well. And when you treat people well, it tends to be a circular thing. They started to treat the Kingsguard and the royalist forces well which further undermined the support for the Kingswood Brotherhood. They were really relying on these people. Eventually, Barrett and Selmy, Arthur Dane, and and as well as Jaime Lannister, remember, still not a Kingsguard now yet, but but, uh, becoming important quickly. They faced (laughs) off against several of the most important outlaws in some sort of showdown that they managed to uh, put together. One of these important ones was the Smiling Knight, uh, who was a madman, a chivalrous madman. Uh, He was slain... By Arthur Dane, after fighting a little bit with Jamie, uh, this guy was cruel. Uh, great uh, smiling kinda...
0: knight was slain by Arthur.
2: Right. Uh, to be clear, <laughs> Jamie fought him first, and Arthur slew him later. Um, this guy was apparently didn't feel any fear. He was cruel. Um, later, uh, later in the books, a character refers to him in memory as his generation's Gregor Plagain, not in terms of how big he was, but just in terms of his personality and how much fear he inspired in people. Uh, also, there was Simon Toyn, who... Uh, uh,
0: another Toyn. Another
2: Toyn related to the Toyns that tried to execute, or rather, assassinate uh, King the Fourth.
0: They had some uh, bad uh, connotations to them, and they were not as respected after that, those events.
2: Right, actually. I suppose that they may have been an outlaw, like, the Toyns may have been... An outlaw house, by this point, they may not have had their lands anymore. We're not really clear on that, but it seems not unlikely, considering the other guys that tried to assassinate the king, and this guy's part of an outlaw band. It seems likely, at this point, the Toines were, were were out of it. And, of course, there's some Toines that turn up later in the Golden Company, so uh, they're still around, maybe. But Simon Toyn was killed by Barristan. That is uh, how he met his end, and Barristan adds yet another notch to his... Oh, uh, a list of achievements! His,
0: page in, the white <laughs> his book.
2: page in the white book, exactly.
1: That's better. Yeah, his belt has probably got a lot of notches in it to the point it's falling off,
2: <laughs> but not those kind of notches. <laughs> Being celibate, yes. <laughs> oh well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't help myself there. No, those, those, those
1: notches go in the headboard.
2: <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so, Jamie, uh, once again, coming back to this, he was, he's serving under Lord Craycall at the time. He saved Lord Craycall from an outlaw named Big Belly Ben. a uh, funny name. Yeah, great name, huh? Now, in lieu of, of his encounter with the Smiling Knight and his fighting of this outlaw uh, who was about to kill Lord Craycall, Sir Arthur Dane knighted him uh, shortly after. So, Great
0: person to be knighted by. Yeah,
2: it's hard to do better than that, huh? <laughs> All right.
1: Yeah, Eddard Stark, um, Ned, he actually said that Sir Arthur was the, probably the finest knight he ever saw, and that he would have killed Ned
2: if it weren't for Holland Reed. Just to jump in for a second there, too. That means we have Jamie saying he's the finest knight he's ever seen, and Ned Stark saying the same thing, so yeah, you got that's a, pretty big a guy who's really honest and noble versus a guy who's kind of arrogant, maybe says what he thinks. Both of them say he's the best. <laughs>
1: we're going to rotate back to that one point in time that seems to revolve this entire story is the encounter at the Tower of Joy.
2: Dum dum dum.
1: And <laughs> this is, like, a really curious place for Sir Arthur to be. The Rebellion, you know, was going on. It was, you know, far to the north. Why was it that he and two other Kingsguard knights actually remaining there, when his best friend, Prince Rhaegar, rode to war. And, and, and this was a secret. So which brings another important aspect of the duties of the King Guard's knight. So a King's Guard could be judged by how well he performs his duties. First and simplest, a King's Guard should be an elite-level fighter, Though clearly this can't always be the case, if they're never retired due to age or maiming, mm-hmm. uh, duty is more complex. Uh, it's an abstract concept, like willingness to sacrifice and such, as well as a willingness or an ability, I should say, to keep secrets uh, because of the things they would overhear being in the presence of you know royalty. Um, that's all part of the role.
0: Yeah, uh, keeping secrets is particularly important. I mean, think about the kind of things that kings and queens speak about and uh, what kind of harm this could do if if anyone heard this. Uh, I mean, surely some, I mean, many of the Kingsguard knights have been aware of affairs, false parentages, rapes and murders. I mean, consider again how many people the Targaryen line has produced that are just... Incredibly twisted and cruel, and the kind of things they get up to. I mean, Ares Targaryen keeps in point.
2: Or Arian Brightflame, or just, n- you just name just, it. There's just just
0: name it. There's tons. So, yeah, there's, plenty there's, of them. T- like, there's so many. Think of beg the unworthy. We were just talking about all the things that Aim and the Dragon Knight must have watched him do and kept secret and kept silent and just tried to protect Nerys as much as he could.
2: The, the job of a King's Guard is never done, I suppose. <laughs> no,
1: of course not. Well, I mean. I mean, the Kingsguard protects secrets as much as it does his own life. Uh, if you consider the Kingsguard uh, at a distance, it's easy to perceive them as, a, a, you know, say, a, an honorable sworn brotherhood, a bastion of you know, noble service. The reality is that they often protect some of the worst possible individuals. Willing of the powers actually made more effective and terrible due to the protection
2: offered by these seven zealous guards... Uh, at one point, Jamie overhears Ares being rough with his wife. It's just, just kind of clear that he's raping her, which is a strange thing to do to your own wife. But he's being really rough, and she's screaming, and it's really awful. Jamie uh, points this out to Sir Jonathor Derry, another of King's Kingsguard. He another says dairy. Another Derry, as well as the demon of Derry there. Um, oh. That they are expected... He points out that, that, aren't we supposed to protect the queen? And Derry's response is... We are, but not from him. Ah, oh, that sucks. Yeah, so he's so he, it's a problem for Jamie. You know, he's he's pers- he's, young, he's young and he's kind of he's got all these illusions and now he's like wow. nice Yeah, morally conflicted. And of course, the bigger, much bigger one, he had to watch like a lot of other people in the court did. Oh, and Jamie freaked out cool. that there were the court was full when this happened. Well, we have. Lord Rickard Stark being roasted in his armor above a fire pit while poor Brandon Stark has to watch with the strangulation device attached to himself so he can strangle himself trying to reach a sword that will free his father. Jamie has to sit there and watch this. The white bull, Gerald Hightower, that we mentioned before, he notices that Jamie's perhaps struggling with this with event, and he, he, he kind of gives him some... Some words of to encourage him, I suppose, something to get and help him get by. Uh, is saying that remember that we're sworn to defend the king, to protect him, not to judge him.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> start on that one.
2: Yeah, that's a dodge there, isn't it? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, that 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 was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Um, yeah, Jamie. Uh, he had been named to Kings yard shortly after the events of the Kingswood uh, Brotherhood making him the youngest knight ever to have been named to the Kings
0: yeah he eclipsed Sir Roland Darkland another Darkland who was a young 17 a young 17 because Aemon the dragon Knight of course was also was also, was also 17 but clearly not younger Uh Sir Wallen died within an hour of donning the white cloak, but we're told his king survived, so he died well when it comes to the King's Guard uh,
2: yes, they can do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, ja- yeah. Jamie got his—he uh, got his spot after Sir Harlan Grand- Grandison died in his sleep, uh, and this was a fitting way to die for a scion of House Grandison, whose sigil happens to be a sleeping lion. <laughs> Yeah, the young lion replaced the old, and just before the Tournament of Harrenhal. So Ares did this as a slight against Tywin, robbing him of his heir, you know, to uh, to Castle Rock.
2: Yeah, so here we have another example of a Kingsguard appointment having a significant political impact. It wasn't just naming another great fighter to join the bodyguard. no. No. Uh, Tywin is now faced with Tyrion as his heir, uh, which you know we just saw that on the show recently. <laughs> how how Tywin he does not reacted to—he <laughs> he did not. He is not going to let Tyrion be his heir, even mm. despite the law and then how things tend to work. It explains a lot of his attitude. Why? It, it explains part of why Tywin has this very defensive, very rigid attitude towards Tyrion inheriting Castle Rock. It actually goes beyond some of the things he said about. I'm not gonna let you turn Castle Rock into your personal whorehouse or whatever. <laughs> so,
0: I actually can't imagine why they wouldn't think that, like, upon the dissolution of the Kingsguard, you know, like Tywin could wouldn't have thought to get you know Jamie disbarred from there. But not sent to the wall, so that he would get it. like that. Seems like the perfect spot to get your son back. He was too young. He was under seventeen. You know, you have to be at least seventeen. There could—I don't know. It just feels like he could have maybe gotten Jamie. I guess maybe he wanted Jamie there for Cersei. I don't know.
2: It's hard to say. It's
0: hard to say. It seems like Tywin had the ability basically to ask anything he wanted of Robert, and he could have said, "Make Jamie Lannister not be able to be in your Kingsguard."
2: Yeah, that is—that is actually is kind of a peculiar thing. I never thought about that. Uh, but the end result of Ares naming Jamie to his Kingsguard was that he got Jamie, but he lost Tywin <laughs> and the support of the entire Westerlands as it came. So maybe that wasn't yeah. such a good deal. And uh, not t- too long after, he would dearly need Tywin's support as Robert's rebellion was about to take place. Ares had one of the finest Kingsguards of all time, but the political considerations kind of got in the way um, and maybe helped keep them from being as effective as they could have been. He wanted to keep Jaime close to ensure Tywin didn't join the rebels, so he kind of kept him at the Red Keep while the rebellion was raging. Um, meanwhile, Doran's support, which is crucial for Ares keeping the Iron Throne, uh, it was a little tentative. It was there, but it was tentative. Um, and it was this was because Rhaegar had just kind of insulted his wife Elia by running off with Lyanna, and Ares actually didn't really make it any better. He sent prince lewin south to bring up the dornish army that was supposed to come and join the royalist army but he did it kind of kind of uh well he didn't do it very gently he basically reminded prince lewin that i have your niece (laughs) so you know you better do your job (laughs) so yeah yikes
0: so with all this considered, Lewin took charge of ten thousand Dornish spears, and all himself he held ten thousand Dornish <laughs> spears in his hands. See, you
2: can see why he was on the king's guard. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: uh, they joined the Prince of Dragonstone, uh, and they marched to the Trident. And but while there, he uh, he fell, cut down by Lynn Corbray, who was wielding the Valyrian steel blade, Lady Forlorn. Forlorn. But you remember that was wielded by a uh, Gwayne Corbray in that earlier fight between Lady Forlorn and Blackfire. <laughs> so another epic, you know, Valyrian, you know, epic Valerian steel thing with that Lady Forlorn. Mm. Um, oh, yeah.
2: Good fight, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> good fight.
0: Uh, Sir Prince Lewin was already mortally wounded, though, and when, when Corbray killed him, so
2: don't tell Corbray that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, have we seen Lynn Corbray? In the show?
2: Uh, in the show, no. But he...
0: He's a Veilman.
2: He's in the Veil, and he's a, I think he's the lord of... Oh, I forget the name of their their castle. Um, anyway, he'll probably appear He'll at some probably
0: point. appear, but... So he has a badass Balerian steel blade. Uh, Lewin, though, on the other hand, he was the uncle, as we said, of Elia and Doran and Ober and Martell. For show viewers, you're about to see a whole lot more of them in the next season. Mm-hmm. Uh... But uh, in any case, uh, it's, it's possible that Prince Lewin's joining of the Kingsguard coincided or was related to Elia's marriage to Rhaegar. Makes perfect sense to me. I mean, that's something we've seen before, or really after, in that <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, in that uh, you know, uh, Marjorie has Loras there to protect her, and uh, Cersei has Jaime, though that's coincidence. Yeah. And I'm sure we can imagine that in times of old, when maybe a tar- there was a Targaryen king with a high tower wife. There might be a high tower in the Kingsguard at that time. They're also all from noble houses, so it's not that strange for them to even be in the Kingsguard, period. And uh, Lewin, of course, he was also, I mean, he was the younger brother. He was the third son, so that also makes sense. Oh No, he wasn't, no.
2: Lewin would have been... He was the uncle of... He was
0: was from a different line completely. The the heir was Doran, and he was his uncle, so he was... He would
2: have been the... Younger brother of the pr- ruling princess of Dorne at the time. Because remember, Dornish women can inherit. So, Doran, uh, before Doran came along, Dorne was ruled by a woman. And that would have been uh, Prince sister. Lewin's older sister. Yeah.
0: Right. So he had all the reason to join,
2: basically.
1: Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, and,
0: uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then we're going to talk about more deaths at the Battle of the Trident, <laughs> More Kingsguard <Fun>. deaths.
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, uh, well, there's Sir Jonathan Derry, who uh, we actually mentioned uh, just a little while ago. Uh, he also died at the Battle of the Trident um, just some time after Prince Lewin, and soon after, of course, we had the big one, Rhaegar himself, smashed by the hammer of Robert Baratheon, and then of course we had Jamie uh, we, 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 Jamie continued to remain in King's Landing his father appeared at the gates with a large army of Westermen. And so Jamie had the ultimate decision to make. So we're omitting a few details from this event as the show will probably cover them soon. Those of you who have read the books, though, know the in-betweens. The obvious result, though, is given the nickname Kingslayer, is that Jamie killed the Mad King Ares Right at the foot of the Iron
2: Throne.
0: As we said, Kingsguard are the only people that can carry a blade in front of the king. Easy for him to do it, really. Yep, that surprised was surprised it hasn't happened before. Worked actually.
2: out poorly for Ares in that case. <laughs> and if what's funny is Ares wouldn't even let a barber near him with a razor to cut his hair or to trim his fingernails, but. King's Guard. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jamie yeah. probably could have just throttled him to death anyway. Was <laughs> yeah, length, he was a weakling.
1: Yeah, he didn't move a in a very, out. very prime
2: position.
0: he <laughs> there was when running away. He put up no fight at all. Yeah. He, he yeah. Thought that he should have a king should put up more of a fight than that.
2: Yeah, he may have, we're told he may have even you know pissed himself <laughs> at the moment of <laughs> realizing what Jamie was about to do. So, but the King's Guard that we, we really know best. Uh, Jamie being a part of it is the, those who have served under Robert and, and now Joffrey. But let's we can compare some of those to Ares because despite the fact that Ares fell, he had one of the best Kingsguard of all time. And it's contrasted to Robert slash Joffrey's is like one of the worst. Yeah, um, yeah. We we talked about how political appointments have always kind of been a part of the Kingsguard, it's always it's always affected it. But it it seems like that's become a bigger thing now. Um, in, in modern times. It's like the it's like the selection process has been corrupt over time. Less and less about having the best fighters who were noble representatives who were able to defend the king, and more about just putting people in the right places so you can use them. And Cersei puts a few people in place that are hers, and of course, Robert ha- just didn't seem to care a lot about these, a lot of, about a lot of these things, Kind of let Cersei and other people around him kind of make these decisions. I mean, Barristan in particular objected to serving with Jaime, and Barristan was a lord commander. He, he didn't he really thought that Jamie should be executed, but he was also he was also okay with Jamie going to take the black, which is probably a more reasonable suggestion given, given who Jamie is. It's harder to go ahead to tell with someone like Tywin around saying, your son should be executed. So <laughs> suggesting he takes the black is maybe the more uh, politically expedient thing to do, despite Barristan's very strong feelings on the matter. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy really to let the guy that killed the previous king Stay on the King's guard. I mean, really, isn't that strange? I, I got to think that if it wasn't Jaime Lannister, brother to the king, brother to the queen, <laughs> who just married the king, you know, uh, that is probably the only reason he got away with all this. That was his saving grace. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not the only way that Jaime, like has sort of, in, either independently or just because of his presence, has sort of broken some of the traditions of the Kingsguard.
1: Yeah, and he actually kind of breaks tradition uh, in small ways, since he's wearing Lannister emblems. And uh, he had a gold to the normal all-white Kingsguard look. He had actually a gold trimming on his cape.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like. Uh,
0: Loras Tyrell puts little roses on his on his fastenings.
2: And I think that's sort of breaking down the traditions of the Kingsguard. We see these things like, well, Jamie did it, why can't I do it? Yeah. then again, look who Loras is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he does like. <laughs> oh, <laughs> again, the brother to the queen.
0: But yeah.
2: it's oh, <laughs> exactly good. another brother to the queen. Exactly. Ironically, <laughs> though. It was Ares who, remember, Ares picked Jamie for the Kingsguard, the guy that killed him, <laughs> and the guy that starts to break down a lot of these old traditions. So, And he did this all kind of to steal uh, Jamie from Tywin. And that was yeah. the domino effect there. Um, so contrast that to, say, Prince Lewin, who we were just talking about a bit. Uh, he stayed loyal despite the threat of. Made to Elia, the treatment of Elia and the threat that Prince Aerys or King Aries kind of you know subtle, maybe not so subtle threat really. Um, compare that to say, Sir Mandon Moore. Uh, while he, while Mandon Moore may have been under orders from the royal family, the show's certainly pointing out that it was Cersei's orders. You know. The King's Guard aren't supposed to be murdering other royals, regardless of who tells them to do it. If
0: <laughs> exactly. the king tells them to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess if the king tells them to do it, that's...
0: Not, not just the queen
1: regent. The but not regent. the
2: queen regent. That's, that, you know, that's not okay. The queen regent doesn't have that kind of power. It shouldn't yeah, have. They're not, they're not supposed to do that. That's, and Sir Mandan shouldn't be going along with it, despite these orders, and he apparently just, just did it. So, And <laughs> well, that's assuming probably that... probably have to work with a slip face. Yeah, <laughs> and that's by the way, assuming that what we've heard is accurate—that it was Cersei's orders. So if it was somebody else, I mean, it gets even worse.
1: I'm pretty certain it was.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, but well, we'll see. Now, sir, so Sir Mandon Moore, just to give a little bit of detail about him—well, we don't really have a lot, actually. He he comes from the Vale. He arrived on the scene with John Aaron, which is a kind of a feather in his cap, because John Aaron was a good guy, an honorable yeah. man. Um, but Sir Mandon—he kind of has this sort of. Darkness around him. We're told that he looks like kind of a ghost in a sh- in a white, sh- especially wearing all white. He looks kind of like a ghost in a shroud. And we also know that he wasn't very popular with the small folk. And typically, the Kingsguard knights are popular with small folks. So that's that's kind of noteworthy. And they're usually like, "Oh, look, it's the Kingsguard. Those guys are you know, those are honorable, noble guys. They're you know, they 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 take these these oaths that are you know, people fancy. can look up to. They look fancy, yeah." <laughs> But they, they don't but, have sir, any blood on their... <laughs> well, not unless they've been fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sir Mandon Moore, but uh, did not earn that kind of respect, though. So, uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe he was just more corruptible. I don't know.
1: Well, and then we also have uh, uh, Sir Marin Trant, um, which everyone will know. He, he's a he's particularly bad Kingsguard member. Uh, he's actually one that actually... He's one of the men that actually fought Sirio Sorrell, or Pharrell, is that his name? Pharrell. <laughs> Furio Pharrell?
0: Furio Pharrell.
1: Furio
2: Pharrell, you got it. You got it.
1: And, uh, and he also participated in the beating of Sansa. Um, that was in the show, if you remember, when Tyrion came in and said, what's going on here? She to be your wife, you know, kind of thing to a Joffrey. And uh, it was actually quoted to him, you know, you are no true knight, Sir Merwin, is what she told him. Uh, we also mentioned uh, Boris Blanc, who was eventually stripped and reinstated. Uh, and Sansa kind of leaves. He's the worst Kingsguard Garden member ever. Fattest. He's just one of those sloppy drunk, you know, whatever. And uh,
0: <laughs> Boris Blanc. Guys,
1: you
2: guys easy to dislike, really.
1: But. <laughs> uh, uh, the fun part is the man who actually replaces Sir Bob, Boris Blunt was Osmond Kettleback. Uh, and he was a hedge knight, according to him, who actually fought in a celtic company in Essos, and that makes me wonder which one. I mean, because we know of a few celtic uh, companies he did, uh, in Essos,
0: gallant men. What? We don't know much about the gallant men in particular, what they fought for, who they fought for. We know the name, but what does that really tell us?
2: Basically, a, a generic celsort company. That's what we know. <laughs> so, <laughs> it wasn't like Golden Company or anything?
0: No, yeah, nothing, nothing like nothing that. Too yeah. prestigious. Yeah.
2: Like that. Okay,
0: but uh, there were a few good members in, in this uh, Robert Joffrey Kingsguard era.
2: Of course, Barristan's still there for a while. Yeah, of
0: course, Barristan's mm-hmm. still there for a while. But there's also yeah. um, um, Aris Oakhart, who is. One, he's, he's somewhat attractive, apparently. Uh, but when commanded to, to beat Sansa, he objects. He does eventually give in, but he only he hits her very lightly. But, he, you know, he does give in, but not all men can... It, it would have been killed if he didn't, I guess. So, uh, he, we don't see much of him, however, because he sent Dorne with Princess Marcella. To guard her, you know, she's a she's a royal princess. She gets her own king's guard, her own sworn sword to guard her. While she's, she's down there. in Dorne,
2: which isn't, yeah, the, which very isn't, dangerous. which which you know at the time Tyrion was kind of unsure of their loyalties. So this yeah. is part of, uh, you know, part of keeping that. Loyalty. She lucked,
0: she lucked out on the king's guard they sent with her. I mean, she could have only gotten more lucky if like Baristan was sent. With her. <laughs> yeah, you do know, with a dutiful man. Uh, another good member during that time was Balon Swan. He was a skilled fighter. Not the most skilled, especially compared to all the other Kingsguard members we've just mentioned this whole episode. Yeah. Very, very low <laughs> compared to them. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting because he—he was appointed by Cersei after uh, Sir Preston Greenfield was killed in a riot. Preston Greenfield—he uh, was—he uh, was one of the Kingsguard members who beat Sansa. So perhaps karma. A little, yeah. little
2: karma there, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's also maybe Cersei's. Only, like, really good appointments. She made a couple other appointments to the Kingsguard, and there were a lot of mistakes and just bad names. But Balon Swan actually regarded as a good choice. Tyrion thinks he's a good choice. Even Varys thinks he's a good choice to the point where, well, the evidence we have that Varys thought he was a good choice was that he tried to undermine <laughs> their selecting him to the Kingsguard in the first place. That's that's your hint there. Varys, was, Varys dropped a few hints that Balon may not be perfectly loyal. Really it was just that he said he made a joke at a toast. When they, someone said... A toast to the king and Balin said, which king <laughs> And that but that was just a joke. You know, so so this is but Varys brought it up. He just maybe he was trying to feel out the waters trying to see if hey, maybe I can keep them from adding this great guy onto the King's Guard. So but uh, so but that obviously that little effort didn't work and Balon did wind up on the King's Guard.
1: And it's funny, because uh, Balon's actually considered to be exceptional with a bow, but he still plays second to Angwe. And if you saw the episode this past week he was the archer from the Brotherhood without Banners that shot the arrow up in the air, air and flash. landed almost right where Hot Pie Land was standing. Yeah. So, uh, your know, you know, family, you know, especially interesting about that. After seeing Angwei shoot, perhaps no surprise that yeah, she defeated
2: Cersei. Even the very worst King's Guard know that their duty is to guard the king. Why then did certain key members of Ares of Seven, whose deaths we have not discussed, remained at the Tower of Joy, far to the south, while Rhaegar was fighting the decisive battle of the Rebellion. Lord Commander Gerald Hightower, the White Bull himself, went to the Tower of Joy to seek out Prince Rhaegar under orders from Ares. Rhaegar obeyed his father's commands, leading the royalist forces to the Trident, but he ordered the Three Kingsguard to stay. Even after Rhaegar died, they stayed. You might think that Ares' death would finally get them moving, but no. They stayed with Rhaegar's lover and her bed of blood. So when Lord Eddard and his six companions arrived in search of Lyanna Stark, Ned wondered why they didn't go to Viserys, and he asked. The Kingsguard were adamant, though, being vague at the same time, they were, in fact, upholding their vows by being where they were. But how could this be? What remained of the royal family was far away, and they were making no effort to join them. So how does that? how do you figure? Mm-hmm. But if the bed of blood reference means, as many of us do, Believe that Liana was giving birth, then we might have our answer. An answer which might reveal that the White Bull, the Sword of the Morning, and Sir Oswald Went died exactly as a Kingsguard knight should, protecting the king and his secrets.
1: And that brings us to an end of another episode of the History of Westeros podcast. A podcast dedicated to the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm just one of your hosts, I'm Steve, a.k.a. the Fergit Italian here in Los Angeles, and I was joined by the always knowledgeable Aziz, as well as his girlfriend Ashea in Atlanta. So, if you ever want to, you know, you have any critics, comments, concerns, even suggestions, we are welcome to take them. You can feel free to contact us at westeroshistory at gmail.com. You can also contact us at Twitter at WesterosHistory, History. And, of course, we have a Facebook page, and you can find that under WesterosHistory History as well. So, once again, I bid you... Valar Margulis.